Steve, tell us about how you see the idea of science. Well, the idea of science is one that's common to all cultures. And in Western culture, there have been different disciplines at different times that have qualified as sciences, starting from geometry and mathematics. It's even included theology. In the 19th century, it included history and a lot of the disciplines we now call the humanities. And in more recent times, the natural sciences have been the major examples of the sciences. What's unique about the development of science in, let's say, the last 100 to 150 years is the idea of professionalizing science, the idea that a special group of people do science, what we call scientists, which is a word that gets coined in the English language and in most other European languages only in the middle of the 19th century. Do you see science as a well-defined concept? On the one hand, there's this view of science as being critical of established beliefs and so forth, what I call the enlightenment view of science, where you're overcoming superstition, tradition, and so forth. But then on the other hand, there's this idea that science provides the foundations for knowledge. You know, so once you've swept away all the superstition, you then build up something from scratch, let's say on the basis of empirical data, sensory observation, stuff like that. And that's closely tied to uh, what in the last hundred years or so has been called positivism in science. Why do you think people are persuaded by scientific ideas? Our ordinary notions of intelligence are to a large extent modeled on scientific reasoning. Also, teachers, certainly in the last century, have often been taught that thinking involves things like hypothesis testing, problem solving, things, again, the models of which are primarily in the physical sciences. And so, as a result, people, after a while, learn to think that this is, in fact, the most intelligent, important way of thinking. And so, even though people don't know much science per se, and they can't actually follow the scientific arguments much of the time, if it's put in a form that seems like it involves problem solving, and logic and hypothesis testing, people are bound to believe it. Now, much is made of the uh, differences between the scientific method and uh, theological interpretation, that science and faith are at the opposite ends of the spectrum. Does your work question or support these differences? Well, historically, science and theology again, except for the last hundred years or so, have been on the same track. The time at which you start to find that uh, religion is being explicitly challenged by science at a kind of institutional level, where one would say science replaces religion, it starts with Darwin. And that's the point that coincides with when the natural sciences start becoming part of the regular university curriculum. And at that point, you start to see histories of science written that basically talk about a perennial war between science and religion. And to a large extent, this has gotten into the popular culture. And it's kind of the way in which I think ordinary people who haven't done a study of the history of science tend to see things today. Now, you've spent a considerable time and effort constructing an account of the history of scientific ideas. Why do you think science emerged within Western European societies in the first place? The straight answer to the question is basically that at some point, say, somewhere between the 13th and 17th century, the people who were the precursors of modern experiment came together with the scholarly people, the people who were writing and lecturing for a living in the universities. And basically their activities developed a kind of synergy so that uh, people who were making things had the stuff explained by people who were theorists and theorists had their hypotheses tested by the experiments. And this kind of mutual sort of interaction took place. And that was very unique in the West. Now, of course, the background point is what social conditions enabled that to happen? And I think that the short answer to that question, and it's a very important answer, is the university. Because the university was established as kind of an autonomous space, it allowed the possibility of these two different groups of people to interact with each other on a regular basis. Because one of the differences between the West in this regard and, let's say, China or Islam or any of the large imperial cultures, which in fact had very highly developed technology and very sophisticated literate cultures, was the fact there was traditionally a class and sometimes even caste differences between these two groups of people. So it was very unlikely that, let's say, you know, a theorist or a, or a scribe would ever take seriously an artisan as someone who could 
exercise some kind of constraint on their knowledge claims. When we think of science, we tend to focus upon Western conceptions of the scientific method and scientific knowledge. How would you compare this understanding of authoritative knowledge to that established in other cultural locations? There's a great deal of, uh, you might say, rhetoric or ideology about science being pursued for its own sake, right? That as it were, before science can serve any kind of social ends, it has to serve its own ends. And its own ends is greater truth or something of that kind. Now, from the standpoint of a religion like Islam, where everything that human beings done is subsumed under a kind of value system that's sort of underwritten by the Quran, this seems to be sacrilegious because it's like as if scientists can go in any direction they want. They can trample on values. In the case of Japan, it's a different issue because the Japanese took science quite instrumentally. And what that meant was they didn't buy into a kind of Western mythology that you had to accept certain kinds of Western values in order to promote science. Right. So if you didn't have liberalism, if you didn't have democracy, if you didn't have ideas of progress in the Enlightenment sense, then you couldn't have science. Well, the Japanese experience basically said, look, this is not our history. We can appropriate the scientific ideas. We can use them for the kinds of purposes that we want in chemistry, engineering, whatever. And the West can have its you know, historical superstitions. And in fact, Japan very quickly became one of the top five scientific nations in the world within a couple of generations of modernization. So it was quite clear you didn't need to have the history of the West behind you in order to develop very progressively in science. Now, your current work is on the public understanding of science. Can you tell us something about how you investigate scientists and the way in which scientific ideas are communicated? Most scientists seem to think that the public lacks understanding of science and that the whole point of the public understanding of science is to educate people. So first of all, they like science and second of all, they know something about it. And it's presupposed that those two goals are somehow connected together. In other words, the more people know about science, the more they will like it. What the social scientists tend to do when they study public understanding of science is to imagine that the public, in fact, are not lacking anything, but rather they have their own conception of science, as it were. They take the stuff scientists say, they put it together with their own experience, and they try to come up with a more or less coherent picture of what's going on. Another issue, too, I think that would come up when the social scientists study public understanding of science is that there's a difference between knowing the science and believing it. So, for example, a lot of biologists complain about the fact that the public doesn't believe in evolution as if the reason is they don't know what it is. Well, in fact, the public often does know what it is, and they still don't believe it. And I think that scientists have to live with this, the fact that one can know something and yet not agree and believe it. That's one of the ways, kind of a small way, in which science becomes a more democratic activity by scientists coming to be able to respect the fact the public might have different opinions about what they're doing and that those opinions are quite legitimate ones. You mentioned earlier that uh, there was a difference between philosophies of science mm -hmm. and what scientists actually do. Right. I mean, is there any particular approach to knowledge construction in science, any particular philosophy of science who's important to the way that science is understood? I would say that Thomas Kuhn, who is perhaps the most influential philosopher of science, perhaps of the whole 20th century, certainly of the second half of this century, that his views have in fact become very much taken for granted. And uh, I can just summarize what the model is very briefly. It's in a book called The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. And the book was originally written up uh, as a result of courses basically aimed to teach science to non-scientists. So it was sort of the ultimate forum for public understanding of science. And the first point is that you need a paradigm. And what a paradigm turns out to be is an organized way of, of, of doing inquiry in which a group of people basically agree on what are the theories they're going to be taking for granted. They agree on the methodology that's going to be used 
to further inquiry, and they agree on the standards they're going to use to test the hypotheses, so they can more or less agree whether or not a certain finding is legitimate or not. But because science has to deal with the nature of reality in the world, as scientists try to solve their problems using the methods that they have, they run across problems that they can't solve. And these are called anomalies. And these things accumulate over time until you get a point where there are so many problems that you can't solve, so many anomalies, that the scientists themselves start to question very deeply whether they've been operating with the right assumptions. And at that point, you reach what he calls a crisis. And it's at the point you reach a crisis that, as it were, the whole Pandora's box is opened and people start talking about alternative ways of doing science. And then when someone comes up with an alternative way of doing things that in fact can solve all the problems that the other paradigm can't solve and at the same time open the door to new problems that will be interesting to solve, then you have a scientific revolution. And then you go through the cycle again. Now, it's true a lot of people emphasize the revolutionary character of of what Kuhn's talking about. But he himself tended to downplay that. But uh, it is quite different from other philosophies of science in emphasizing this business of paradigm and normal science. And I think a lot of people have bought that idea. The idea of paradigm is being used in all sorts of different ways. Now, what do you think is the impact of the, this approach, actually, on social science? What social scientists took from Kuhn was the idea that if we all got ourselves to be speaking the same theoretical language, if we got our methods in order, and we chose some you know, very selective problem domains to operate in, then we too can become a science. We don't need fancy technology. We don't need millions of pounds or anything of that sort. And that was a very unique feature of Kuhn's uh, model, namely that the natural sciences were not scientific because of anything technological, but rather because of the internal structure of their social activity. And so the social scientists say, we can do this too. You spend your life as a social scientist studying scientists. Now, what do you think we can learn by studying scientists? I think what is unique about science is the mode of social organization, how these guys are put together, as it were, how they communicate with each other, how they interact with each other. And so the interesting question is going to be science as a social formation. For example, in physics, it's taught the same way all over the world. You can have international conferences and people from all continents understand each other. If you think about it, there aren't very many other sort of social formations that have this kind of far-flung, universal kind of characteristic to it, and which people respect so much even if they know nothing about its content. I mean, one of the things that I stress in the science book is the fact that most people know much more about the religion that they believe than the science that they believe because religion typically doesn't just operate at the level of the priests and the theologians but also operates at the level of the community, at the level of pastoral counseling, of the Sunday school, of the catechism. Science doesn't work that way as a social formation. There aren't those mediating steps. So as a result, people will believe, you know, airplanes fly because of the law of physics, but they won't have a clue what that belief means. They won't have any way of articulating it. Whereas the ordinary Catholic or Protestant, let's say, will be able, you know, to quote verses from the Bible or at least some, something of that sort to justify religiously what it is that they do. So there's a sense in which even though science is supposedly the most rational activity, people's belief in it is very irrational in that it's not based on any very substantial knowledge of it. And I think that's a very interesting social feature about science is just how much people believe knowing how little. And I think those kinds of aspects of science, right, its uniqueness as a sociological phenomena makes it very worthwhile to study and, of course, will be increasingly important because some of that unquestioned belief is beginning to be questioned.